Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me John Dolan and Angie Martosio and Simon Vozik Levison, and we're going to talk about the adventures of Bob Dylan in the 21st century. We did a list recently going through the best songs Bob recorded this century, pegged to the release of his new album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which is pretty great in itself. And the list does include some songs from that album as well. Before we start going through the list, let's talk more broadly about Bob in the 21st century, because I think some people who maybe haven't paid attention might assume there's something inherently ridiculous about a list like this for someone who was 58 when the century turned. Wasn't all his best work in the 60s and 70s, you might ask? Actually, no, this is an artist who had an amazing 21st century. And in fact, the 21st century has been more fruitful for him than the 80s and 90s especially the 80s. But John, how do you see Dylan's work the past 20 years? How would you place it in his canon? I think what you just said is true. If you look at the 80s and most of the 90s, it seemed like a lot of people were kind of ready to write him off a little bit almost. Like he was making records that some people often found kind of absurd and changing a lot in ways that people didn't really understand or like. You know, he came back with Time Out of Mind in in 1997, and that was kind of a suggestion of the possibility of kind of a new spark. But it was a lot of an album that had a lot to do with sort of intimations of his mortality and things like that. And it took a little while to get the next one. But I think when Love and Theft came out, it was such a mind blowing moment and the sense of rejuvenation and the songs on this list. There's a bunch of them from that album, just the sense that like he was so back. And then it's continued to be consistently great, you know, even while taking kind of odd detours like the the standards records he did, which I think, you know, some people love him, some people like him. He's got a weird Christmas album that, you know, but the, the consistently great three or four records, I mean, he's got, I think you could say three or four records during this time that are arguable classics. And I can't think of an artist that even gets near that at that age in their career. I mean, maybe we'll find out as other artists age, but like compared to his contemporaries, there's nothing really like it. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I remember you know, first hearing albums like Love and Theft back at the beginning of the 2000s and thinking they sounded great. But at that time, to me, they sounded very much like kind of late career records, like kind of an epilogue to this great career that had happened before them. And now and you realize, you know, those first couple albums he put out this century were really just the beginning of this incredible 20-year run where he's redefined his voice, he's pushed into all kinds of new territory, uh, done incredible creative work that I think, you know, I don't know if anyone was really expecting that when the century started. Angie, I get the sense that ultimately you're more of a fan of his earlier work. But even that interests me. As someone for whom this might not be your favorite Dylan, still, how do you see the last 20 years? I mean, as Simon said, when these albums first started rolling out, I didn't think much of it, especially at my age at that time. I was very into the obvious like 60s and 70s and even the gospel years. Um, I think the coolest part about this, though, is that it's really like Dylan in my lifetime as I'm getting older. So uh, we'll talk about this obviously later, but seeing him live, especially performing these songs has been a whole different kind of ball game. And mm. there's something to appreciate about that. I think that part of the thing was people thinking that his voice was burnt out, that he was burnt out. Again, I think Time Out of Mind was, you know, you can almost kind of grandfather that into the 21st century. It was certainly was the prelude to all of this. And, and it showed that there was a lot to come. But I think... Part of the difference is that Time Out of Mind got a lot of credit for uh, Daniel Lenoir's production. People put a lot of weight on that in the reception to it. And Dylan himself was not thrilled with it. I think that he always, it was always a push and pull with Daniel Lenoir. 
And he wanted to show, I think, that Daniel Lenoir was not responsible for his comeback and also had an idea for a sound that was much more unadorned than the Lenoir thing, which I love, but that's all kind of swampy echo and studio tricks. And what Dylan wanted was the sound of a live band in a room. And he became his own producer. And this is really for the first time in his career. This is someone who had like a very bizarre relationship with the recording studio, right? I mean, he's, he's someone who would, you know, refuse to teach the musicians the songs, someone who got bored with the mixing process. He, he just could not deal with modern recording. And at some point, a switch shifted. And I think, I think it, really, it really started with what happens to be the number one on our list, uh, which is Things Have Changed. He went into the studio with just an engineer, this guy named Chris Shaw. Chris Shaw also, he engineered stuff like uh, Weezer's first album. He was very close with Rick Ocasek. He was very much like a 90s guy, but he and Dylan got along. And when he recorded Things Have Changed, it was just Dylan and his band, his road band, I believe, and, and Chris Shaw, the engineer in the studio, and it clicked. And he had written this amazing song. And from there on, the producer of Dylan in the 21st century basically has been Jack Frost, which is his, his alias. John, what would you say about Things Have Changed, for instance? Well, yeah, I think you kind of said it. It indicate that he was going to, you know, like the thing you mentioned about producers, like it's so interesting that that generation of guys in the 80s and 90s were so kind of like certain that if only they had the right sound, like found the right producer, found the right sound, they could, you know, you know kind of reclaim whatever it was. And, they, and, and I think he kind of, with this song and then with Love and Theft Right After, like, kind of signaled to a lot of different artists too that you can sound like yourself and that's okay. And, and make records that sound like, you know, the way you want them to sound. And uh, I think this, yeah, I think like you say, the song kind of starts that. Well, it's a great point. The 80s were, you know, just a, a just sonic death for so many people because they were convinced that they had to sound like the 80s. Uh, and so it could be very dangerous territory, especially for artists who came of age in, in the 60s. But things have changed. Like, Simon, I mean, it, it's pretty clear. It just felt like an atom bomb from him. It, it had such fresh, frisky energy, especially compared to Time Out of Mind, which, again, was like sort of, you know, it conveyed all this mortality stuff that he later kind of denied that was what it was about. But it did, he did sound like kind of half dead in a cool way on Time Out of Mind. And then all of a sudden, he sounds so alive on Things Have Changed. Yeah, I mean, it, Things Have Changed, incredible song. I think to speak to a point that Angie just raised, that song, when you hear it live in his sets, gets the same level of you know, cheers and connection from the audience that, you know, like a Rolling Stone does. I mean, that, that song has entered the canon for, for Bob. And, you know, I'll say something maybe slightly counterintuitive, which is that the sound of that song is incredible. The band is incredibly tight. You have that sort of more live in the studio sound. But what I love most about that song is the way that that sort of live band sound freed him up to write some of his, the best lyrics he had written in decades at that point. That song is just so packed with funny, sharp, witty moments that, uh, you know, maybe it was watching the movie Wonder Boys, which is a cool movie, but it, you know, the song transcends that. The song has this, this voice that's both in dialogue with Bob's own younger self decades earlier and also creating this whole new persona in, in a really incredible way. 
Yeah. Angie, are you a fan of that one? I love that one. I mean, as we're talking about live stuff, it's, it's right when he enters the stage and starts singing it. And it's this amazing, incredible moment every time. It never gets old. And I think, you know, as we're talking about the Wonder Boys, it's like we thought about that at first. And now it's like all these years later, like Margot Price is covering it. It's, it's taken on this whole life of its own. And I really love it a lot. I love how that song, you know, just the, the chorus line, I used to care, but things have changed. I mean, that's an idea that Dylan had been playing with, you know, going back to, you know, my back pages, you know, decades earlier, but he, he takes it even less seriously almost, you know, now than he did back then. He, he's having so much fun. There's such a, a playful, mischievous energy to the way he says that uh, on the song that, that really makes the song come alive. Skipping around a, a bit, it's weird. Some of the songs near the top of our list were technically written in the 90s. But again, you know, it's, it's all, time is an illusion anyway. But Mississippi, which was supposed to be on Time Out of Mind and was first recorded by Sheryl Crow. It's on Love and Theft. And it's just, again, insanely great and so strong melodically. I'm also, I'm always most impressed in the 21st century when he breaks away from blues forms and just kind of like writes a new chord progression and you can't really trace its sources. There's a lot of things that you can trace sources, but that's Mississippi, I think, stands alone in that you can't really point to, oh, this is where he got the chord progression. This is where he got the melody. And not to mention, there's all these different versions. You can hear it, uh, you can hear it evolve in, in the various versions. I always think of, uh, you can always come back, but you can't come back all the way that possibly he, he's so aware of Neil Young always think he was responding to, uh, you know, once you're gone, you can never come back. <laughs> it's like his, his slight twist on that. John Dolan, what do you want to say about Mississippi? We walk the line. Your days are numbered. So I'm right. I think I just remember getting that record and um, that, like you say, was kind of the first big turn on there where you're like, oh, wow, this is something completely like another a classic, classic, classic song that goes right into the canon of Dylan songs for the first time, you know, in a, in a little while. And, you're, and the melody's so great, you know, and also the theme of just kind of constantly changing, finding a new way to say that. Angie, where do you weigh in on Mississippi? Uh, I think it's kind of also like you noted in your blurb, like with this upward chord progression, it's very reminiscent of like a Rolling Stone. And yeah, I think it's pretty great. Mississippi is an amazing song. I mean, you, you mentioned, Brian, like the, the sort of progression that it went through in the studio over the years. There's a, a really cool version of it, two really cool versions of it on the Telltale Signs uh, bootleg series edition that you know people who love uh, Latter Day Dylan should listen to. But it, it's amazing to hear how he took it from, you know, this kind of more spare, folky, kind of slow, you know, exploration into this, you know, really awesomely upbeat energetic, joyous recording that you hear on Love and Theft. Uh, he really, he found, found the heart of that song and really went for it. One of the things you hear about the way he was working in the studio at that point is he had no compunction about recording a song in like seven different versions that bore no resemblance to each other, you know, and he would pick the best one. And he really drove his bands. He would just, if he felt they weren't nailing it he'd be like well you know maybe maybe you guys just can't handle it maybe i have to record this one by myself and they'd be like no no no, we can do it and they you know they they do another version and i think that part of what that shows is the advantages of this sort of old-fashioned approach where instead of record a version you have an arrangement uh, and then you kind of might you fix all the instruments and overdub on that version instead he was he kept doing it over and over again from scratch even singing live a lot of times you're hearing his live vocals in fact 
he would insist on setting it up in such a way you couldn't really overdub the lead vocals because there was so much leakage into his microphone. And in fact, you hear that leakage as part of what the sort of three-dimensionality and un-21st century soundingness of these songs is, is, is that, that live in the room feel is he, he did a lot of unorthodox things, but I find this super fascinating. And, and it, it sounds like he was also having fun and also like super creative. I mean, Chris Shaw, the, again, the engineer talks about, you know, Bob be like, I don't like that verse. And he disappeared into the next room and he'd come back 40 minutes later with two entirely fresh, amazing verses. He definitely just reconnected with his muse, I think, or muses to jump wildly around chronologically, but next on the list is, is Murder Most Foul, which uh, came out this year and uh, was last discussed on the podcast when Robbie Robertson revealed that Dylan called, read him the lyrics on the phone and asked him to play on it, and Robbie said he was too busy. So don't know what to make of that one. We're still trying to figure that one out, but I think just an extraordinary kind of mind-blowing song. It was a dark day in Dallas. November 63 The day that will live on in infamy John Dolan, what do you make of this song? 17 minutes long. Yeah, I'd say that maybe one tiny detraction about that, but like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe a tiny one, but, you know, just that it, when it came out, are, are everyone feeling so down and kind of stricken and that history was just stomping on us. And then here's this song about kind of how you deal with that um, and how you kind of process it. And it was just another example of if you did the, like the, the, the greatest list of what are the most timely Dylan songs, they, they'd be from different decades, but this would have to be pretty high up there. It really felt like in a bizarre way, because it's like, you know, so long and everything does kind of capture the moment in a new way for him. Yeah, he, he absolutely, with Murder Most Foul, found a, a completely different way to approach topical songwriting, which is something he's had this kind of vexed relationship with over his career. I mean, this is, is so different from any of the other songs he's written to respond to current or historical events. I remember when, you know, when this song was released, it was a surprise. And I remember, you know, waking up and reading that headline saying a 17-minute Bob Dylan song <laughs> about the Kennedy assassination and thinking it was either a joke or, or some kind of horrible mistake. And then... You know, because on paper, that sounds like a kind of absurd thing to do. But then you listen to the song and it, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's he is writing about this, you know, huge historic, you know, tragic event. He's also writing, as John said, about just the experience of listening to music and using it to mediate one's relationship with the world and the country. He's also just he's he's writing a song about songs in, the, in this really incredible way, situating himself as both a listener and a songwriter in dialogue with dozens and dozens of great musicians from you know through the the decades and centuries it's a a pretty incredible thing there's something kind of funny about writing a song this long when everyone had all this time anyway like we were all just going into sitting around doing nothing and he's like well here's a 20 minute song you can all listen to while you do nothing it's kind of hilarious but even that (laughs) was timely i was up that night and i i guess i ended up writing it up for the site but when i first hit play on the song and the first line is like "Twas a dark day in dallas november 63 my initial reaction was like definitely a beavis and butthead type of like oh no like it's just like I, I just i just was like i was like i was fairly horrified i thought it was going to be like this song about the titanic on tempest which i do not like i do not think that worked I still don't really understand what he was going for there. I don't know if we, we have any if we have any fans of that one. No apologies for that one. I don't think I'm. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, this is going to be like that, and it was not at all. It it ends up being sort of, you know, the word stunning tends to be overused in in criticism, but it was like 
literally jaw dropping when I first heard it because it just, he just really went for it. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it, there's a lot of complex things going on. And I, I did, I was disappointed in the fact that when it first came out, there was a lot of knee jerk reactions that never went past that initial, my initial reaction to the first line. It was just sort of mockery of like, there's no way that a, a 17 minute song by Bob Dylan released in 2020 about the JFK assassination could be worth hearing. It's like, no, it's like profoundly worth hearing. You get worried when you first hear it that it's going to be like this forensic thing about like the assassination in like 20 minutes. Well, you know, it could have, but it's like he takes it and does exactly what he's what he would want him to do if he was ever to do this. That's also works in an incredible way at the end of Rough and Rowdy Ways, the album. Uh, He has it formatted as its own disc, like a second disc, you know, coda. And in that sense, it's it's part of something that Dylan has been doing for many years, the sort of epic album yeah. club, you know, Coda, going mm. back to Isolation Row and Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. And I, I think this is his first, like, truly new way of doing that in, in a long time, where he, you know, it, it, the, the mood of the album completely shifts, and yet this kind of, like, long, contemplative meditation uh, on all these themes kind of puts the whole album in a new and amazing light. Yeah, and of course, naturally, he says, like, I don't think of this song as me reflecting on the past or glorifying it at all, yet it's packed with, like, 20 more, like, historical references that range from, like, Don Henley to Memphis in June, which he also mentions on Tight Connection to My Heart, which is a song, like, decades ago. It's always cool to just know, like, what, what Bob Dylan is listening to. And, and like you say, Angie, like, in the past, he's, you know, sort of, you know, he'll, like, drop a hint here and there in an interview or in a, a song lyric or a chord progression. I love how Murder Most Foul is just kind of this, like, huge download of, like, everything that's going through Bob Dylan's head in terms of, you know, songs and art uh, that, that he's loving right now. Yeah, and there is definitely something to be said about the knee-jerk reaction that Brian was talking about, where there's this... You know, there's whole, these reactions initially were like, do we really need this right now in 2020? And it's like, absolutely, yes, we do. The ending when he just starts, you know, he's basically talking to an imaginary Wolfman Jack and just starts, like we said, naming songs and asking him to play these songs. And it's, it's a prayer, it's an incantation. And it's, it's I, I think, among the most moving things he's ever done. When it starts that it's, I, I don't really know what the hell he's talking about. As often as the case, I, if I had to say it, he's talking about the moment for him when everything went wrong in America, but then music as a source of redemption, but that is probably a vast, vast oversimplification. And Simon, I like that you, you wrote that it's, it's, he inscribed them all in a book of life expressed in the form of a of midnight playlist. I think that's, that's well said. What are you thinking there? It's for sure, it's, you know, it's a song about memory where he's, he's casting back his mind over decades of thoughts and experiences from, you know, being a young man watching the Kennedy assassination on TV to, you know, then suddenly he's talking about the Beatles and Altamont and, you know, he's listening to the Eagles. There's like an Eagles song that he likes that he mentioned. It has this quality of kind of trying to record all these things that he remembers, things that have been meaningful to him in his life and making sure that we don't forget them, making sure that they somehow last beyond the moment in which they, you know, they occurred. And there's something kind of beautiful and profound about that. I think. I think it's just laughable. A Dylan song about the Kennedy assassination. Who needs it? Uh, so number six is paying blood. I'm dressed in the light that shines from the sun. I could stone you to death for the wrongs that you've done. Dylan loves the Rolling Stones. He, he mentions them on. Uh, he he has an amazing mention of them on Rough and Rowdy Ways, and I think it, it's definitely his among the most Stonesy 
musically among the most Stonesy songs he's ever recorded. Lyrically, even Mick would probably not be able to write a song so vicious. John Dolan, you wrote about that. Yeah, uh, I feel like this is one of maybe among his top two or three ever political songs. It's just the, the, the way it calls out hypocrisy, just at every kind of level where it's like, obviously the violence of, you know, I pay in blood, but not my own. It's like, you think of war, you think of slavery, but you also think of just anytime someone chooses their own self-interest, even in the vague sense of like, you know, something's wrong with the Republican party, but you still want your tax break. And it's like, it's just, it's like, unlike some other Dylan political songs, like some of the classics, like Masters of War, it's like, or, um, you know, some of the civil rights songs, it's like, you know, people are on his side, I think, in those, like most people, you know, a lot of people, unless you're like Robert McNamara, you probably find like destruction and war bad, and you think Southern slavery, Southern racism is bad. But I think this one, it's like, every single one of us kind of gets called out on this and gets connected to this violence and oppression and evil in a way that makes you have to think. And also the fact that the song itself is kind of rousing, as you say, like a kind of a Stones anthem, almost as a level of an extra twist of meanness to it that makes it even more profound. I, to me, I think it's my favorite political song he's written. I mean, what are the key lines for you? Because I, I find it, again, a little bit, I think you're right. At the same time, it's a, it's a little bit of a mystery, exactly who he's addressing and what he's <laughs> talking about to me. I guess I just assume it's about, or I think it's about just kind of cruelty on many mm. levels and not being responsible for your own actions and just not really owning up to the things that you have to own up to about your life. And it could be personal. It could be in a relationship. It could be whatever, but it seems like it casts back to larger historical things and things like that. That's how it struck me. I don't know what you guys think. The, the lyrics of that song have an incredible contrast and mix of tones. And I think what, what John is talking about, it, it's a combination of, you know, these like nasty, violent threats that he's going to, you know, kill or maim someone within these kind of like high-minded, you know, lyrics about, you know, nation must be saved and freed and you know i'm sworn to uphold the laws of god uh where i think he, he's forcing you to look at that kind of hypocrisy and contradiction that i think as john says is at the heart of america and its history he also i cannot interpret the line i got something in my pocket make your eyeballs swim as anything other than i have some really good weed on me but i i could, I could separately i could be wrong I think uh, he's gonna hit you with something that he isn't gonna show you you know, you're going you know, to hurt and it's not going to be because you knew it was coming. He, so uh, let me that line is a great example. Though. I mean, he, so that's sort of like a cartoonish and, and almost funny image, right? And then he follows it with, I got dogs could tear you limb from limb, which is this gory, real, not funny at all image. You know, he, he's really, he's playing on the contrast there. And that's another one that like, you know, you think of like civil rights, Montgomery and, and, and Birmingham and things, you think of as the pretty concrete historical image there. And you think, and it kind of looks forward now into the sort of violence that is happening right now of like state violence. And, you know, it's one of these ones, another one of these ones that just goes in many directions. It's again, a genuinely stunning song. I remember when I first heard it, it was just, it's just like, I think it's been hard to know what to expect from him this century, kind of as always, but the sheer sort of muscularity and again, viciousness of it were just, you know, just kind of shocking. So number, number seven is Key West, Philosopher Pirate. Dr. Sibakuli, but death is on the wall. Say it to me, have you got something to confess? As soon as I heard that title, I was like, is he, is this a Jimmy Buffett thing? And 
maybe <laughs> like a little bit. He loved Jimmy Buffett. There might be a little bit of that in that. I, Rob Sheffield is not with us today. Wrote about that. Does anyone want to chime in on it? Rob Sheffield is the person who convinced me to listen closely to Key West. He loves that song, and he's made a, a really persuasive argument that that I have ended up kind of following. You mentioned Jimmy Buffett. It, it, it kind of is, as you say, like Bob's version of a Jimmy Buffett song, except for Bob, you know, retiring to an island you know, in Key West and dipping your toes in the water has this like overwhelming feeling of like film noir dread, <laughs> which, which you're not going to find in most Buffett songs. And uh, it, it's a, a song that, you know, on the surface has this kind of like easy breezy feel. The, the arrangement is like really really sort of like a nice chill end to the first disc of that album. And you, you listen more closely to the, al- to the to the lyrics of the song. And it's a song about a, a lonely person at the end of the road who's, you know, alienated everyone in their life and, and is reckoning with what that means, which is a, a kind of character and perspective that Bob has, has frequently considered. But I, I love the way that he kind of sneaks that in under the guise of this kind of Buffett-esque, you know, chilling on an island song. Well, it's hot stuff here and it's everywhere I go. Thunder in the Mountain is at number nine, and it's a great example of that live in the studio thing that he was creating, as well as this this thing where he started looking past, back before even 50s rock and roll. He started going into standards and jump blues and other stuff that, you know, is kind of pre-Elvis Presley, pre-Chuck Berry. John, I mean, this is, I think, an example of a track where it started to become clear that he was going to be pushing into new territory in the 21st century. Do you recall your first listen to it? Yeah, I mean, I think what you say kind of is the way that he is, you have to pay attention a little bit, but the, the, the combination of this song with like, it's kind of like Bob Wills, it's kind of like Rockabilly, it talks about Ma Rainey, but it's, it's combining all these things into kind of his own idiom of the past. It's subtle, you know, it's, it's to take genres that you don't really, that aren't necessarily always together, despite all the history with all the possible times people could have done it. And this is one of those examples of that, where he's kind of like making the past of music history kind of his own in this, in this really subtle way. I was always struck by the beginning where it makes it clear that you're hearing a band kind of start up in a room, uh, sending a message that this is, again, this is not time out of mind. This is something else altogether. And then as we're working on this, I realized that in the Bible, thunder on the mountain is actually like, that, that's God. That's a signal. Of, <laughs> that's, how, that's how God says he's arrived. And it, it's also like, it begins this thing in the 21st century of, of Dylan being sort of like horny on Maine. Uh, he, like he's part of the thing of him making clear that he's not half dead is showing that he's like really, really alive. So he's kind of like lusting after Alicia Keys and I've sucked the milk from a thousand cows. There's this like old timey blues boasting about his sort of uh, sexual prowess, which is, you know, I think wears a lot better from an old man. Somehow he, he kind of gets a pass. But uh, I, I, you know, I, I find that amusing. Ho- hopefully everyone does. I love the Alicia Keys reference in that song because it, it's just classic Bob that this is a song that at its core, as, as you guys have said, is about either, you know, pre-rock and roll 40s and 50s music, or it's about like ancient biblical history, but it's also about cool young pop star in 2006. I, that's very funny that you juxtaposed those two things. And number 10, uh, Duke Came Whistle, which is definitely one of my favorite uh, Latter-day Dylan songs. Listen to that Duke Whistle blowing. Blowing gonna sweep my world. I like Duke Whistle so much that I actually have a, a 
Bob Dylan merch t-shirt that I got at one of his concerts that features the phrase, uh, can't you hear that Duquesne whistle blowing on it with a big picture of a train. Um, <laughs> is this, it, it's a, a great song. It, you know, it has this great kind of rollicking live band energy that you know, we've been talking about that many of his post-2000 records have. The lyrics are so tightly written and, and so great. He's just throwing this barrage of wildly all over the place lyrical imagery at you. Uh, it's a song that could be about God, death, love, sex, listening to music. It could be about an actual trumpet or a, a whistle or, or, or whatever the musical instrument that he's, he's listening to is. Uh, it really sweeps you in uh, and is a, an incredible scene setter for that album, Tempest, which is a, an album that you know has some of his, his best Latter-day songs and some other songs that are maybe not, not as great. But it, it starts off on a really strong note that way. I always love the intro, which is this kind of like little jazzy piece, like this little kind of just a true intro that stands aside from the song. And as soon as I heard it, just knowing Bob's ways, I was like, this came from somewhere specific. And I, I believe it's a, a Jelly Roll Morton tune. Uh, amusingly, in the interview, Dylan cited, I forgot what, but a, a totally different source, which I, I think he just got confused. It's pretty clearly this thing. But it's a great example of, sure, it sounds exactly like this little sort of ragtimey thing from 1930, but like, who else is bringing you that, in this century in any fresh context you know it's it, it's it's a wonderful interpolation of it number 11 is huck's tune which i like almost forgot existed uh, it's a great song well i wandered alone through a desert of stone and i dreamt of my future wife huck's tune is, is a really great song I, the the story behind that one is that uh you know a few years earlier he had written things have changed for Wonder Boys, directed by Curtis Hansen, that, as we've discussed, is, is one of Bob's greatest songs ever. Uh, a few years later, Curtis Hansen had a new movie, again, showed Bob an early cut of it, and Bob wrote this great song for it. The movie has kind of faded into obscurity, and as a result, the song isn't as well-known either, but it's a, a really, really great song, this kind of beautiful, stately love song uh, that has a real emotional honesty and openness that's rare in, in a lot of Bob's work. A great song. He's one of a few people, it's like, when you win an Oscar for a movie song... It feels so good that you then say yes to a lot of movies afterwards. It's, it's true of Springsteen too. Like you, you just keep writing more and more hoping for that next Oscar and it doesn't work out, but it often prompts. It's also like, it seems to be a great songwriting prompt for great songwriters. So it's, it, I'm glad he wrote some great songs for perhaps forgettable movies. Let's go to number 13. I contain multitudes. Today and tomorrow and yesterday too. The flowers are dying. I think a point worth making about Bob, both in this century and last century, is his sense of humor, which people sometimes forget about. Uh, he can be really funny. Uh, and as Simon said, this song has parts that are, quote, absurd verging on insane, which I think is the only thing you could possibly say about this song, Simon. I mean, it's kind of the Anne Frank thing led you in that direction. That, that line, yeah, that's the line in which Bob says, I'm just like Anne Frank, you're like, okay. Just like Indiana Jones, you're like, huh. And then, he was, and then British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I mean, he, he's got to be messing with you when he, when he pairs those. <laughs> There's no possible way of interpreting that that makes sense. But uh, it's, a, it's a weird line. It's kind of a funny line. Uh, I like how it shows you that Bob is still, you know, he's, he's still in there. He's still joking around. He doesn't take himself too seriously, which is ultimately what that song, I Contain Multitudes, is about, right? He's, he's kind of both putting himself in the context of these great artists throughout time, you know, comparing himself to, you know, Walt Whitman or William Blake, 
But uh, he's also showing that he kind of uh, is still the trickster after all these years. He's still still kind of messing with you. Uh, it's it's pretty funny. I mean, technically speaking, he does have things in common with Anne Frank, Indiana Jones, and the Rolling Stones. That is all true. <laughs> it's just a deranged thing to say, but it, it's he's not wrong. It's just very weird. You know, like I, I paint landscapes and I paint nudes. It's just amazing. It's just I, I, I drive fast cars and I eat fast foods. It's just like hard to... It's hard to place yourself in the mindset in which he wrote this song, but it, it, I think that makes it all the more uh, entertaining. He's got to be laughing when he, when he writes those lines, lines like that. And I, I, you know, I love that uh, Bob Dylan did the, the only interview he's done to date uh, on this album. He got a very serious interviewer asking very serious questions about that uh, song and, and those lines, and he gave these answers that are just clearly messing with the interviewer. I'm not sure if the interviewer got that subtext, but he's, he's clearly having a laugh. Yeah, especially with the Anne Frank line, he's like, every line has a purpose and all three of those characters are locked together. So I would love to get in his mindset as to how they are locked together. <laughs> and then he started praising John Williams' music for Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, uh, I mean, I love too, but I, I just did not expect that <laughs> from him. He's like, a, in an interview, he's like a vending machine where you put the coin in and, and like anything could come out. You know, he's like the world's most insane vending machine. Like, it's just like, like you do not know what's going to come. Like, if you gave me a list of 10 things he was likely to say, and one of them was we're absolutely rhapsodizing about the work of John Williams on the Indiana Jones score, I would not have guessed that one. At number 19, we have one of the standards that Bob recorded. He got into a deep groove of standards records, which were, you know, a lot of them were kind of Frank Sinatra-associated and there seemed on the surface, again, to be a certain perversity to it. Why would Bob Dylan, of all people, be recording these pre-rock standards? But what it really was was an expression of where his musical interests had started to lie and also a part of his roots that he hadn't really explored. But you can hear the influence of these kind of songs on a lot of his 21st century stuff. You know, I mean... It, Beyond the Horizon, for instance, is, is basically a rewrite of Red Sails in the Sunset, which is a, uh, you know, like a, a, a Bing Crosby song. That's probably the, the most blatant one. Um, but John Dole, maybe talk about why, why was I born a little bit. Why was I born? Why well, it's funny because you said like this perverse thing. It's like it wouldn't be a Bob Dylan renaissance without some weird <laughs> and kind of think about or deal with but like so this one comes so he made these two standards records and then you think well that's you know so then he's like no i have another one and it's three cds long so he came up with this with triple kit which was the final one of these and it's when we were looking around the, the last song on it is this jerome kern oscar hammerstein song that sinatra and elvis recorded i think sinatra recorded it pretty early in his career but it's like you know, it's just a lovelorn torch song lament. It's like, why was I born? Why am I living? And it's kind of like, you know, he takes it and fills it in with kind of this question. I think a little bit when you listen to it of him kind of saying like, I'm an old guy who still has lots of things he wants to do. And what am I going to do? And it's another kind of way to get, take this song from the, I think the thirties that was an early song for Sinatra and make it about his own life and, and his own kind of mortality, I think, and another way into that for him. And, you know, you've made it through three CDs of this stuff and you're finally <laughs> the last one. And it's, I think, pretty profound song, you know, and um, how we feel about that. I do think you're right that his singing, I think Rob Sheffield in his review of Rough and Roddy Ways pointed out that um, coming, you can hear how this stuff helped him sing better for this new record. 
Mm, and, yeah. and I think that's, it's interesting that you had to kind of go through this and I'm not saying go through it. Some of it's great. And I don't know what you guys think of the, these records, but it's interesting that he would, you know, that's part of his process. Like it took me these records, but like it, it's now he's actually a new kind of better singer when he's what, 82. And it's amazing. And this, these records influence that. I think this is a pretty, I think this is a decent song, a kind of profound song in some way. I think the, the precursor to these records is the one that I, I love the most, which is the Christmas album. Yeah, uh, 2009 Christmas in the Heart, and that is, you know, jumping around, that is, must be Santa is kind of an exception from that record. It's this, like, insane klezmer thing. But a lot of his, of that record is him very sincerely singing pre-rock standards that happen to be Christmas songs. And I love the way he sings this stuff, you know? And, and I, I think he found a way to use his voice that, you know, like, look, it's, it's not that different from the way Louis Armstrong would sing right. songs like this. Yeah, totally. Like, right. I feel like there's a certain ahistoricism that creeps in where people act like it's crazy for someone with a voice like Latter-day Dylan to be singing this stuff. It's like, well, was it crazy for Louis Armstrong to sing it? Like, it's like, what are you even talking about? But Angie, I mean, you've seen a lot of Dylan shows, as you said, this century. Like, what, what are people missing about what he can do with his voice now, especially compared to the way he used to sing? I think it's really interesting to see it at this time in his life, as we were talking about with like the triplicate and the standards. I mean, we have to talk about Autumn Leaves too, where it's like... The falling leaves Drift by the window You know, Sinatra and all these people covered these songs like well before they were 50. And he's 74 singing these songs. So I think when you see him live, it takes on this whole new meeting. You're seeing him now, but he hasn't given up. And there's something really special about that. So I find myself like often having to try and defend Dylan, which we all have to do now for like the 21st century. Uh, And I think if you see him live, as I try to convince people, like it kind of changes your perspective on how you view him now. You know, I've I've seen Dylan shows that, I think are great. And I've seen ones that are less than great. I think probably the best one I saw was just a couple years ago uh, at the beacon and where he, he had found yet another way to sing. And I think again, influenced by these standards records, the band was playing quieter and he was singing more quietly and it allowed him to get like a new melodicism from his approach and I, I was I was kind of stunned. I was kind of stunned that he's still kind of developing as a singer. And I think you know, it's a, he he is and always has been a great singer. And I think that that's one of the fundamental things people misunderstand about him. It doesn't mean he has a great natural voice, well, but he is a great great singer because of his phrasing and because of what he does with his instrument, even when his instrument is not in its best place. And I think that the gravelly thing that was sometimes an aspect of his 2000 sound isn't always my favorite, but he's already kind of moved past that. And found, there were times I saw at least one live show where it felt like he was kind of barking at the audience, <laughs> um, you know, and I think that that's probably when the band was playing a little too loud. And, but again, like I, I think, do you know what I'm talking about, Angie? I mean, he's seen, there's been all sorts of different approaches, even this century, it feels like. Totally. And I think also we have to talk about his band members and the way that Charlie Sexton helps him out when you watch him live. Uh, a lot of that is kind of like forgotten about and not talked about because everyone is so focused on how his voice sounds at any particular show that his, <laughs> right. band, com- it's, his band becomes overshadowed. I think one of the most interesting things that Bob has said over the years and, and misunderstood is this is when he complained about modern records having too much 
just being full of noise and everyone thought he was talking about the music but he was actually talking about just like the density of recording right, yeah, and, and, and loudness wars and all that kind of thing and when he was talking about it, he wanted to feel space and room and it, you know maybe it's a little bit about arrangement but i think it's about it's more about that like atmosphere uh, and I think that's one of the things that he brought back both on record and, and uh, on stage. You know? Well, it's kind of funny because you're absolutely right. And when you think about, well, we talk about Bob Dylan, like the greatest songwriter ever, all this stuff. But one of the things he revealed throughout this time is like maybe one of the really great producers of the past like 25 years. And just like, and almost kind of in like, one person I compare him to actually would be maybe like Steve Albini, where you're like, or Jimmy yeah. Jimmy, where you're like, how do I get the way you, this would sound if you heard it? but not in a cheesy, like live, you know, way, like just like it's a room, like you say, I think that's like, it's amazing that he could add that kind of like feather to his cap, you know, this late that he's like, I'm also kind of this master of how to use the record studio, which considering things he did in the eighties, like is really a triumph. <laughs> so it's like, it's <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that that's a big part. I mean, when you look at what he did this century, the, the, you know, the biggest, the biggest changes were this entirely new chordal vocabulary where again, he brought in kind of diminished chords and, and stuff that had nothing to do with sort of the folk roots that really only were from Tim Pan Alley. Uh, you know, maybe the Beatles occasionally would use something like that, but when they did, they were also drawing from uh, Tim Pan Alley or, or Music Hall, whatever the hell Music Hall actually was. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> and that combined with, yeah, this facility in the studio that he gained from sort of out of, I think just from frustration of, having the opposite if you want to look at the total antithesis of his 21st century work look at something like under the red sky where it was all this kind of like studio stuff happening that he had very little to do with and like slash is in one studio and steve Barry vaughn's in the other but he's not really connecting with any of them you know and, and he he turned it around and this you know listen it, it's incredibly inspiring that someone began their best work some of their best work at, at, at age 58 you know as we said in the intro, uh, youth and inexperience turn out to be vastly overrated. But uh, thanks very much for joining me, John Dolan and Angie Martosio and, and Simon Bozik-Levinson. Thank you. So this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Biome Channel 106. And in the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a nice review on iTunes if you're so inclined. But as always... Thanks for listening. Please try to stay safe and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.